We're back. It's the Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, happy Friday to you. Happy Friday the 13th, Steve. Yes. Well, you know, it's Monday when you're hearing this. Our listeners are hearing this on a Monday, but we're recording this on Friday the 13th. Did anything weird happen to you today? You're the first weird thing that happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are The Rush Cast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro, as always, done by Lex. He did another fabulous job. Jerry always does. Doesn't he, though? He does. He does. So before we started the podcast, we were talking about last week we did Exit Stage Left. You thought it wasn't going to go well. No, I thought it was going to. Oh, wait. Yes. I No. No. I thought it was going to go badly. How do you answer that question? You thought it was going to go well. Yes. I thought it was <laughs> not going to go well. No. I didn't think it was going to go well. You didn't think it was going to go well. And today we're going to talk about All the World's a Stage. And again, you don't think it's going to go well. I, I just don't have uh, confidence in myself to talk about another <laughs> live album. That's all. We're not going to talk about any lyrics. We're going to talk about Live Rush. Yeah. And it's another great one. It is. Fantastic. We'll get into how great it is. But first, I have a Twitter poll for you, Jer. Oh, nice. Is this two in a row? Two episodes in a row? Two episodes in a row. Wow. A couple of weeks ago, probably a month or so ago, we talked about Grace Under Pressure. And I asked our Twitter followers what their favorite song on side one of Grace Under Pressure is. What do you think they said? Do you need the choices? You can give them to me. It's, it sounds more um, professional if you give me the choices first. Distant Early Warning, After Image, Red Sector A, or The Enemy Within. My favorite, of course, is Distant Early Warning, but a lot of people have so much affection for After Image. Mm-hmm. So I am going to go with the people this time and say After Image. You are incorrect. You should have went with your choice, Distant (laughs) Early Warning. Believe it or not, this was one of our closest polls ever. All four choices were right there. Distant Early Warning, 31%. That came in first. Second was Red Sector A at 25%. After Image, 23%. And The Enemy Within came in fourth at 21%. So all four choices garnered. 21% of the vote, Jer. That's great. I mean, is it close enough for me to just declare victory even though I lost? I think we should demand a recount. That's what I think. (laughs) We're going to take this to the courts (laughs) and see what happens. We should. Distant early warning is the winner, though. And I think even if we demand a recount, I think that would still win. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I would want to win. I was trying to read. I should never try to read the mind of the Twitterati. You should just go with your gut, Jer. Go with my gut. So do you have an email for us today, Jer? You know, I do have an email, Steve. Nice. Um, And this one has a title. I like the title. This is from Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Uh, Different Jeff. He's from Georgia. Um, It's called Kid Gloves and the Overall Themes on Grace Under Pressure. Nice. Usually I don't read the titles, but for some reason I like that. Anyway, it says, I got very excited thinking about the themes that run throughout Grace Under Pressure, especially as you were discussing Kid Gloves. I think the key line is anger got their knuckles, which is in contrast to wearing kid gloves. So maybe in putting on our kid gloves, we can set aside anger as a learned response to conflict, or at least learn to respond in a more measured way. I also never realized how much red permeates this album, 
But seeing red is a euphemism for anger, right? This album is full of anger, despair, and fear. And whether it's a red alert or a red sector A or seeing red. And as you guys mentioned, the guitars are sharp and cutting, devoid of warmth. The synthesizers have a lot of teeth to them as well, almost malicious. The cover art is almost devoid of yellow, resulting in a cold visual to go along with the music. I will be revisiting this album with these themes in mind. What a great album and a standout in the catalog because it literally sounds nothing like any other Rush album. Kid Gloves is in my top 10 Rush songs ever, and I love that the changing time signatures give the song a lot of juice. Something Rush has always done well is to incorporate these odd time signatures in a way that you don't even realize it because the melody is so catchy. I think that Red Lenses is the funkiest thing they have ever done. And if you listen to the bootlegs, the way they incorporate the drum solo is excellent. Also, on a side note, they did Red Lenses on the next two tours after this one. And I remember seeing it at my first Rush show, 113087 on the Hold Your Fire tour. Wow. Awesome. Thanks for that email, Jeff. Yeah, thanks. I'm assuming you said they never did it. Did I say that? I haven't slightest idea, Steve. I don't listen to our podcast. <laughs> if I said that, I stand corrected. So, Jared, we're here to talk about All the World's a Stage. I'm very excited. This was Rush's first live album, as we all know. Yep. Recorded at Massey Hall in Toronto, June 11th through the 13th, three nights in 1976 on the 2112 tour. Yeah, hot on the hot on the heels of their breakthrough album. Absolutely. And it was released September 29th, 1976. We were seven years old, Jer, when this album came out. You always <laughs> like to say how old we are. I know. It's cool, though. It's cool to think about. It's cool to think about how, how young we were then, but not if you do the math to how old we are now. That's true. You know, I just like to point out that we weren't old enough to really appreciate this album when it came out. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's all. That's the reason why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. So this was Rush's first top 40 charting album, Jer. It did better than 2112 itself? I guess so. Yeah. It reached number 40 on the album charts. So it just cracked the top 40. Nice. Won gold November 16th, 1977 and platinum in 1981 after Moving Pictures came out. Wow. Yeah. A lot of people went back in the catalog, I'm sure. There was one single of All the World's a Stage Jar. I'm going to ask you what it was. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, man. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this one. I am going to say Lakeside Park. No. Oh. It's the name of a podcast that you're close to. 99% Invisible? I don't remember <laughs> that being a song. I love that podcast. If you're not listening Something to 99% for Invisible. Nothing. Something oh, for nothing. Oh, our podcast. Yes. <laughs> that's a that's an odd choice it is and then the b-side was fly by night in the mood the medley oh the medley yeah yeah interesting right yeah sure so i've got a quote for you jer from this one's from neil it's from rush.com when we play a piece live we add all our little quirks to it it grows our older material shows a remarkable progression some of the songs have developed until they're superior to the originals. This gives us a chance to bring them up to date. We always felt there was something happening live that didn't come across on record. Now we have the opportunity to capture that essence of the band. Neil said this in 1976. Alex, 
we brought the truck in. This was before the recording. Had a very in-depth sound check. I think we might have even set up the day before and did a good solid sound check. And I just remember how nerve-wracking it was. Playing your hometown is always nerve-wracking, always crazy. Knowing the truck was out there and the record button was on, you were just so nervous and so afraid of making mistakes. I got that from Martin Popoff's book, Anthem Rush in the 70s, which I'm holding here. I'm just always shocked to hear professional musicians say how nervous they are when they play. (laughs) I don't know why. I mean, I would be nervous playing because I can't play. But to be so <laughs> to be so good and so practiced, to be like nervous that you're going to screw up, it just fascinates me. Yeah, well, it's just human nature, I think. And Alex, I believe, is human. <laughs> he, he might be. <laughs> I think I read that somewhere. He definitely uh, said at least once, don't worry, I'm human. Which, of course, <laughs> means that he's human. So more from uh, Martin's book, Uh, another quote. This is from Getty. The first live album was very raw. It was the first time we ever recorded the band live over three days. We basically took the best of what we had, which to some fans is very exciting. And from our point of view, it's a little difficult to listen to because it sounds a little crude. But that's the nature of the album. In terms of the work on it, I think we were all pretty involved. Us and Terry Brown, he co-produced it with us. Yeah. And one last one. This one's from Ian Grandy. I listened to it one time. I went, it sucks. And I never listened to it again. And I've heard Getty say he can't even listen to it. How about that? Um, how about that? That's a, that's, that's a couple of words in a row to say. I don't know what to think about. <laughs> anyway, I love this album. I love this album too. I mentioned last week that I don't think the sound is quite as good as Exit Stage Left. Yeah. But after listening to this this week, I mean, we talked about this. It's so raw and so so much energy. Yeah, it's a concert. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like being in a, at a concert, which is the reason why everybody goes to concerts. Yeah, and I, I think what makes it so special is that they didn't tinker with it so much. Right. It's just what you heard when you went to this show. Yeah. It's definitely flubs here and there. Yeah. But I didn't notice any of them. No, a couple of times. I mean, if you're listening, I was listening to it with like, as opposed to listening to it, I was just like, since it's so raw. And since we talked about the post-production work on exit stage left, I was trying to see if some things were different or, you know, went differently. A couple of things, nothing that would bother me and it doesn't bother me at all. I like it when weird stuff happens on stage anyway, when people have to just, you know, just go with it. Yeah. And the crowd is much, much more prominent on this record than on exit stage left. I think. Did you read anything about them boosting the crowd at all? No, I just think that's how loud the crowd was. I don't, I don't think they tinkered with it much at all. Cause I looked it up and Massey hall, according to our good friend, Wikipedia, has a capacity of 2,752. Okay. So I don't know if this sounds like a, that kind of capacity crowd. You can hear individual people a lot. I don't know if you've heard that, if you noticed that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Individual voices as mm-hmm. opposed to the exit stage left has, just has like the roar of the crowd. Well, this is a smaller place, so you would think yeah. the crowd's going to be louder in the mix. Would have to be, right? Sure. 
Yeah. Why don't we run through the tracks like we did on Exit Stage Left? We'll uh, start with track one. We talked about this. A great way to start an album. Bastille Day. Now, this is definitely the first song in the set list. Oh, yeah. Because the guy comes out and says, you know, welcome home, Rush. Yeah, that is Rody Skip Gildersleeve. I'm looking at the average set list for the tour, and Bastille Day is the first song being played. So, Yeah, I don't think they took the songs and moved them around. I think this was the order that the songs were played on at this show in Toronto. As I said, it's just really raw sounding. and. Getty's vocals sound a little more distant than on Exit Stage Left, don't you think? What do you mean? I don't know. They just don't sound as upfront to me. Oh, that. You, yeah. didn't, you don't mean like he was thinking of something else? No, <laughs> no, no, thinking. no. <laughs> Getty, he's so distant tonight. I don't God. understand. <laughs> Why is he paying attention to me? <laughs> <laughs> he's thinking about someone else. No, I mean, they, they don't sound as prominent in the mix is what I meant. I don't know. I mean... I guess it, that didn't, I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that. I, I, I noticed a, a great separation between instruments. Okay. So I guess maybe he's been because of that. I don't know. You know what I mean? As in uh, Exit Stage Left, it's kind of, I don't want to say muddy because I do like the sound, but it's more of like a, like a mix of all the different sounds. This is definitely hard edges between every instrument. Yeah, I just noticed on this record, there are some points where Alex's guitar kind of gets lost, some points where the bass gets lost, some points where the drum, it's it's a little uneven for me. Well, I mean, that's kind of one of the things I like about it is that it's a concert. Yeah. Something like that happens a lot. And don't get me wrong, I don't think it's bad. It's just an observation, that's all. Yeah, but talking about the metallic edge of this album, Bastille Day is a great example of that. It just kicks it from the very first second. Oh, I love it. And a great, great set opener. Did we ever see them do Bastille Day? Don't ask me, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) I should have taken notes, but I would have thrown them away anyway. So I'm going to say this. We never saw them open a show with Bastille Day. That would have been. That you can say. Fantastic. I never saw them play Bastille Day in my backyard at a barbecue. That I can say. (laughs) (laughs) And another thing we could say is Alex's solo. Uh, Unfrickin' believable. He is on fire on this whole record. The whole record. He's just, yeah, the whole record. He's bending those strings like a madman. He is crazy. I would love to have seen, we always say that we would love to see like every stage of Russian concert, but right after 2112, it must have been great because they finally got the, I don't want to say vindication, but they finally got the attention that they deserved to get. Mm -hmm. They had a hit album. They did it their own way. And they go on tour with this, with this album and just knock it out of the park every single night, I'm assuming. But yeah, Bastille Day. Yeah, and the pressure was off, right? Right. I know Alex said he was nervous before the show, but the pressure was off. I mean, they could just let it loose now. Yeah. They're rush. They're rush. You know? Or is the pressure on? Because now they're rush. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Maybe a little bit of both. Maybe not when they're playing live, right? When they're playing live, they get to 
just kind of cut loose. Maybe mm-hmm. back in the studio, you have a little bit more pressure. But yeah, just the um, the looseness. Even though this song is quick, a lot of of the solos are loose. I love that. All right, let's move on to track two, Jer, on all the world's a stage anthem. Again, like we mentioned, this is one continuous concert. This is the, the second song they played on this tour at these shows. Yeah, I didn't look to see which songs were recorded from which, which uh, show. Did you? Do you have a list of that? No, I don't. It doesn't matter, I guess, because it sounds like a concert. Yeah. It's, which is I love. Sounds seamless. Seamless. And Getty's voice is what shines for me on this particular track. Like you said, I just wish I could have seen Rush in this era to hear Getty at this point in his career where his voice was just really out of control. <laughs> yeah, out of control in some ways, but... No, I, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Yeah, it was as high as the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, yeah, screeching like that and not cracking. That's, that's the one thing, man. Have you ever heard his voice in these old recordings crack ever no. when he hits these notes? Nope. He is not messing around, man. He's got like full voice behind this thing. He's, it's incredible the way he sings like that. Getty is so underrated as a vocalist, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And especially something like this kind of shows how strong his voice is. Absolutely. And Neil's drums are fantastic on this song. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's fantastic on the whole record, but this song in particular, I mean, he's yeah. on the studio version too. I mean, he's crazy crazy yeah it's crazy it's crazy all right let's check out track three this is a medley joe we've got fly by night and in the mood Now, even in 1976, Rush were masters at playing songs exactly as they were on the record. And I think this version of Fly By Night is very true to the album version, don't you think? I think it is, yeah. I also like how he says, we want to take you back to our... (laughs) Yeah, back a whole year. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I want want everyone to cast their mind back to the years, years gone by. Back when we were 22, you know? <laughs> Literally like a year and a half ago. <laughs> but yeah, it's a good version of this song. And I, you know, the, the medley thing has never been my favorite thing in concerts, but it, it works here, the, the way they just go right into it. I mean, I think they could have just played the, they don't play all of Fly By, Ni- Fly By Night, right? They stop it. Right. And then they play In The Mood. So it's, and it's a medley, I guess. They just stop one song early and start playing the other one. Mm-hmm. 
um, it's not like later on with working men finding my way. And then right as they start in the mood, Getty says, let's see some hands. Yeah, you see, he hadn't learned his lesson yet. <laughs> <laughs> from, the, from the little hand claps during Spirit of Radio. Right. He's, he wants people to clap. He's probably ruining it as soon as he does it, and people are just clapping all over the place. And then later on, he figured it out. No clapping. No clapping. And again, Alex's solo on Fly By Night, very similar to the album version and also fantastic. What do you think about Neil's drums on In The Mood? I was going to mention this later. Neil adds so much to the songs from the first record. That's what I love about this album is that you get to hear those songs with Neil playing drums. No, no offense to John Rutsey at all. He was, he was great, but Neil adds so much to the songs from the first album. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just the lyrics. (laughs) Well, he didn't change the lyrics. I mean, he could have done that. That would have been interesting, right? Neil changed the lyrics. I mean, how do you approach Getty and say, Hey, Ged, you know, <laughs> why don't we change the lyrics to this song? Right. Instead of calling it In the Mood, or let's call it uh, A Night of Splendor Under the Darkness or something <laughs> and make it about dragons. <laughs> you know, I, I know Neil was very comfortable with Getty, but I don't think he was no. quite the. Could you ever be that comfortable? <laughs> I don't think so. So there's one more track on side one of All the Worlds of Stage, Jar. And it's something for nothing. Now, this is true with the studio version as the live version, but I love the contrast between the quiet part at the beginning mm-hmm. and the loud parts of the songs, the, the quiet yep. loud thing rush does yep. it a lot and it's fantastic. Yeah. And I think at Getty definitely, he hits this song. He's going after, he's going after something in this song with his voice, right? Cause he's just hitting all those notes, but you can hear it, hear the passion behind it. Yeah. And I think the fact that they knew that they were recording this for a live album, it just had a little extra oomph behind it with Getty's voice yeah. and, and they're playing. Yeah. And this song, it seems louder than some of the other songs. Is that, did that, did you pick up on that? Or maybe it's just me. I think it might be Neil because he's pounding the crap out of those <laughs> I drums. I mean, he's right. wailing on the cymbals on this song. Yeah. And that could be why you feel like it's louder because maybe yeah, it is. Maybe. I'm sure they did something to, to uh, even out the sound, but Neil's just really into it. Yeah, but I would love to see a show like this so loud. Probably the closer you, I mean, this place must not have a bad seat, right? 2,700 seats? No, I would think not. Well, the thing is, if we were 10 years older, we'd be deaf right now. Uh, well, speak for yourself, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if I, were, if I were 10 years older, I'd be deaf right now. Because it's getting pretty bad for me, just letting you know. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's uh, my ears, one of my ears is shot. Um, but we've been to a lot of live, loud concerts. Yeah, yeah. What is the loudest concert you ever went to? The loudest concert I ever went to was Urge Overkill. Really? At Irving Plaza in New York City. They're a, kind of an alternative rock band that was big back in the 90s, if you've never heard of Urge Overkill. They're really good. Yeah, they're good. For, they, were, they were big for 
30 seconds kind of they had that one album yeah and they had that hit on the pulp fiction soundtrack too yeah girl you'll be a woman soon right but i saw them in irving plaza and i got there early and i was right up front by the stage and that ended pretty quick because as soon as they came on (laughs) my ears hurt i mean i was doing serious damage and i went all the way to the back of the hall which wasn't that far and i parked there for the whole show but stupidly stayed for the whole thing yeah how about you well i have two one was do you remember when we saw ingve malmstein i do he opened up for triumph i think yeah that was so loud it was back so we had really pretty good seats so of course we were standing on our folding chairs on the floor remember that we used to do that yeah yeah and it was so loud i got it made me dizzy like this, the sonic wave. I had a, I almost fell off my chair. I had to sit down the whole time. Wow. I don't remember that being loud. That's strange. So loud. And then the next loudest one was only a couple of years ago. I saw Amy Ray from the Indigo Girls. Okay. At this place in Asbury Park called The Saint. Did you ever go to The Saint? I've never gone to The Saint. I would like to. Well, it's closed now, unfortunately. Oh. Due to COVID. Um, it's a bar. It's not a, it's not a, uh, you know, a, a venue with a bar in it. It's a bar with a venue in it. <laughs> so it's just a bar that has a little stage and she had her whole, she had everything set up. It was so loud. Wow. Just everybody was just holding their heads. That probably did a lot of damage. You stayed though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why your hearing is bad. I figured, you know, what's 10 minutes, two hours. Well, What's the difference? Uh, there's quite a bit of difference. You know, the last Rush show, I know we're going on a way, big tangent here, but the last Rush show, uh, when it started, I used my phone. I had a uh, DB meter on my phone, mm-hmm. and it was 101 decibels. That was like the average over a couple of minutes. And you can see on the little dial, it says exposure less than a minute. And we were like, that's the exposure. You should, you should only be exposed to this level of noise for less than a minute. And we were like on the first song. So <laughs> <laughs> there's no way we are leaving that show. No way. We're not leaving this show in Massey hall either. We're going to side two of all the world's a stage. Jar lakeside park. Lakeside park. Willows in the breeze. Lakeside park. So many I'm going to say that this is my favorite song on this record. You don't find it a little slow? Don't you think they play it a little slow? A little bit, but I like it. I don't know. There's something about it that just hits me. It's a great song. And when I was listening to it, I just remember hearing it on their last tour. Yes. For the first time. Mm-hmm. What a gift that was to us. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. And Alex's guitar work on this song in particular is just great. Yeah, it's very delicate in places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that this song had special meaning for Neil too on this tour, because I mean, I know St. Catharines is an hour and a half from Toronto, but Lakeside Park isn't far from Massey Hall. Yeah, that's what Getty said at the beginning. Yeah. So it's really close to, to where they were. And I think uh, probably had some special meaning for Neil, which maybe is why the guys played it so well. Remember we had that quote from Getty when we did Caress of Steel, how crappy this song is? 
Like it was the crappiest song. Yes. That he'd ever heard. I wonder if he felt like that then or if it just kind of grew on him. I don't think he did then. I don't think so. I mean, they played the song a lot. You would think they would have enjoyed playing it. I hope so. Well, I enjoyed hearing it. I know you did. That's for sure. And I also like how Alex does this feedback thing on his guitar at the end. Yeah. You know, the transition into 2112. Yep. Which we're going to get to next. Yeah. I mean, that's something they couldn't have done on exit stage left exactly, right? Because of the individual packets of information coming at you. But Mm -hmm. this, this is definitely the part in the album where you feel like you're at the concert. Because you know that happens all the time. They kind of do that. Want this kind of feedback thing mm-hmm. forever and just going to go from one to another. It leads me to believe that the songs on the sides of the record were from the same shows. I mean, clearly, Lakeside Park and 2112 were from the same show. I should hope so, yeah. Yeah. Unless they futzed with it, but it definitely sounds like it's from the same show. All right, let's check out a little bit of 2112. That's next on All the Worlds of Stage. Again, I keep saying this, but Alex's guitar sound is just perfection on this song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Rush didn't play parts four and five, Discovery and Oracle the Dream, on this tour. As we've discovered, the only tour they played the entire song was the Test for Echo tour. Yeah, we saw that. We did. That was great. It was fantastic. <laughs> and the people who were, who were at this show didn't get to see it. Really? I know. It's crazy. I don't know why they wouldn't do that. It's not like, I don't know, they're just trying to keep the energy up or something. They want to drag it down in the middle of the song. Well, I don't think it was that. I think they only had so much time for a show. I mean, back on the Test for Echo tour, it was an evening with Rush. Oh, yeah. It was a three-hour deal. It was a three-hour deal. Here, they had how long? An hour and a half, probably? Yeah. If that, and if you play all of 2112, that... Takes up a half hour right there, you know. That's a third of the of the concert, <laughs> right? So they had to whittle it down a little bit. I I think yeah. I think that had to be the reason. But it definitely, it, if you didn't know, uh, you know that there were two parts of this song missing, you wouldn't realize that there were two parts of this song missing. You know what I mean? It sounds complete. If you were hearing this for the first time, you wouldn't. Yeah, that's what I mean. You wouldn't think that at all. But us yeah. knowing the song feels missing to me, but still great. Yeah, it is. And you know, I love at the end, uh, you know, where the, the voice comes in, you know, we have assumed control mm-hmm. and it just kind of breaks down. And then the crowd for like a half a second, the crowd's like totally silent until they, you know, they're probably just right. like, Ooh, I know. I, I know I was waiting for this song, but what, the hell? <laughs> <laughs> what was that that I just listened to for 20 minutes? And they are just insane on temples of Syrinx on this song. I mean, just oh, God. crazy. I know. It's unbelievable. Yep. Makes me wish I was there. Yep. I wish I were there. I wish I were there right now, Steve. I wish. I wish. (laughs) Why don't we move on to side three? So we've got track seven on all the world's a stage, Jer, and it's a good one. By Tor and the Snow Dog.
Now, I know I said this about Red Barchetta on Exit <laughs> yep. Stage Left. You were going to say it. This is better than the studio version, is it not? It is. It is better than the studio version. I mean, so good. You know what's interesting is that the the, the first instance of the fight, you know, like the background noise, the mm-hmm. part, I think it comes in a little late in the song. It's supposed to hit one part, but it comes in like a couple seconds later. It, it's just like a, a trivia thing, really, at this point. But when when the battle, man, Getty's bass is nutso. Alex, Alex is on a different astral plane, right? Oh, yeah. The, the, the way he's playing in this song is is genius squared. It's it's crazy. And it makes me think about seeing natural science live. Yeah. Just because I was just so over the moon when they played natural science the first time I saw them play it. Yeah. If I was at this show, I would have been losing my mind watching this. Losing yes. my ever-loving mind. Fantastic. I mean, can you imagine? I, I know. I mean, and then, you know, when the song breaks down, you know, when I guess the, the, the battle is over or whatever, mm-hmm. it's basically silent, but everybody's still like hooting and hollering, right? Because you just came out of this. It's almost like a, like a real release because you just came out of this epic guitar bass drum battle and you feel like, like exhausted. It's so fantastic. Yeah. I mean, and half the crowd was probably stoned out of their gourds and they were probably just like, Oh my God, God. what I just saw. I can see the snow dog. (laughs) (laughs) We just morphed into Bill and Ted there for a second, I think. But, but that's probably what people were thinking. Oh my God, I can't believe what I just saw. So when we first saw Rush, you had heard them before, but I was, I couldn't believe what I was watching. You know what I mean? That's your mus- musicianship and all that kind of stuff. I can't imagine this being your first show and <laughs> hearing Pytor and the snow dog. You'd just be insane afterwards. I think, you know, I'm kind of jealous that you got to experience rush that way. I'm sure there are very few rush fans who saw their first rush show having not known the band at all. Really? Yeah, I mean, everyone should be jealous of me for many reasons, Steve, but that's <laughs> definitely one of them. It is, though. It's kind of cool. Yeah, I guess so. I've never, like, I've said it a hundred times, if I've said it once, never been to a show where I didn't know any song by the band and just walked out a, a thousand percent fan. Number I'm, one fan. Number one fan. That's me. Waving the little foam finger. That's crazy. Two hours ch- that changed your life. Exactly. Well, here's something that's going to change your life, Jer. Track <laughs> eight on All the World's a Stage, In the End. So was that life-changing or what? Yeah. My life has changed. Why on earth did Rush stop playing this song live? That's what I want to know. I don't know. This is one of those ones they could have kept playing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think Getty's voice was that far out there that he couldn't hit the notes anymore. No, I mean, it's probably, I mean, God, past this, they had so many good songs on every album. I mean, they had to put some songs in every concert. And fit in some other songs. So I just, it's probably just one of those songs that they just had to cast away. 
Yeah, but it just seems like one of those ones they could have pulled out near the end and, and just threw us a bone, you know? Yeah. They threw us a lot of bones, though, but I wanted this bone. <laughs> you wanted that bone? This is the, your bone <laughs> of choice? Exactly. <laughs> and I got a surprise for you, Jar. Alex's solo was really good on this song. Really? I, had, I didn't <laughs> notice. I didn't notice. Oh, man. Yeah, I would love to have seen them. You know, R40 was such a great tour. Uh, you know, I could have picked out 20 more songs that they could have played. You know, what would have been cool for them to do on the R40 tour is do three nights in a row, let's say at Madison square garden. And the first show they do seventies, second show they do eighties, third show they do nineties. We could have gone to all three and they could have went crazy. I mean, it would have never happened, but that would have been cool. Yeah, that really would have been cool. I never even thought about that. Well, there's a lot that goes into a show later later in their careers, the lighting and, you know, they have to learn all the songs. I mean, it's, you know, they have to learn the well, songs. You know thing? what I mean? Not they don't learn, remember them, not learn them, <laughs> but you know, practice them. You know, if you haven't played in the end for 20, 30 years, you gotta, you gotta work on it again. They're perfectionists. Yeah. You have to re, uh, acquaint yourself with it. Right. Reacquaint. That's a better word than learn. you can cut out learn and we'll just say reacquaint well really though in effect though they do have to relearn the song right yes i agree my favorite part of this song is toward the end where getty's voice on the verse has got that echo on it yeah yeah we should throw a little bit of that in here so people can hear it I just think that's fantastic. A lot of oh yeahs in this song. Oh too. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. When you have nothing to say, say oh yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to side four of All the World's a Stage, Jared. It's getting really good now. <laughs> Working Man and Finding My Way. So, Joe, this is a 13-minute epic. Lots going on here. My, uh, I'm looking it up on Wikipedia, the song list, and it says the length of this is uh, 14 minutes and 56 seconds. I say 13 minutes because the last minute and a half is just crowd. That's true. Now, as I mentioned before, Neil puts his fingerprints all over these songs, and it's fantastic. Yeah, I know. He takes them to a new level. He does. He does. He takes them to his level, I suppose I should say. Right. Well, he would have to. Yeah. He's Neil. He's Neil. Shouldn't everything be at his level when he's playing? Yes, I agree. I would think so. Um, and I just love, I know oh, I didn't, I just say how I don't really like medleys, but this is a good medley. <laughs> it is good. Uh, you know, we go into finding my way right at the four minute mark and it's a seamless transition. Seamless. And at 7.44, we go back to working. Also seamless. Also seamless. And then at 9.15, Getty says, ladies and gentlemen, 
the professor on the drum kit. <laughs> yes, yes. Which leads me to this question. Oh, boy. When did Neil become the professor? When did they start calling him that? I don't know the answer. I don't know either. I'm going to guess it was the, the first tour. Because, you know, you've heard the story about how, you know, they were touring for the first album. Mm-hmm. And they thought Neil was such a weird guy. And mm-hmm. the guy would just sit and read all the time. And they thought, well, if he reads so much, he must be a, a wordy guy. Maybe he'll write the lyrics. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm thinking probably then they realized how intelligent he was. Maybe just started calling him the professor then. Now, I always heard, now I don't know if this is true, but I always heard that they called him the professor because he looked like the professor on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and I've seen, have you seen the picture? I'll have to post this on Twitter. There's a picture of Neil. Now, the picture of Neil is later on. It's from the early 80s. And he looks just like the professor. He's wearing the white shirt and his hair's cut short. And he looks like, I forget the guy's name who played the professor now. Oh God, I don't know. But anyway, I thought that that's when they started calling him the professor. This is, you know, this is before my rush fandom time too, but I don't think that's correct. I don't have the slightest idea. Because he didn't look like that guy then, right? (laughs) I'm looking at the picture right now. He does look like (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't he? Yeah, but like you said, the picture from Neil, this looks like it's from... Early 80s. Yeah, maybe Signals. Yeah, yeah, Signals or or Grace Under Pressure, maybe, might even be Power (laughs) Windows, but but he does look like him, right? It does look like it, but (laughs) I'm looking at a a Reddit page, right? And the title is, is this why they call him the professor and they have the two pictures? And the top comment is, does that make Getty Marianne? That's not nice. <laughs> Any, oh, anyhow, yeah. if anybody knows when Neil became the professor, let us know. Shoot us an email. Yeah, I would love to know. So anyway, the solo is just fantastic. You hear the beginnings of some of his later solos kind of creeping in here. Right. And it, it's just great. Just early Neil is awesome. Yeah. In no way am I trying to say that this is a rudimentary solo. I might use the word rudimentary, but I don't mean it's a rudimentary solo. Comparatively, it's less structured mm-hmm. than later solos. It's rudimentary for Neil. Right. Again, like you said, it has he carries some of those same phrases onto his later solos. Mm-hmm. But you know, you can't I mean compared to, you know, the later solos in the nineties compared to this one because how long is this one two minutes two and a half minutes yeah it's more like three three minutes yeah as opposed to the 15 minute solos or whatever Mm -hmm. later on i mean but for a rock drum solo in the mid 70s it's untouchable yeah it was unheard of at that time yeah who was doing this nobody nobody you get drum solos i've said this before you get drum solos but it's just for cheers you know what i mean right somebody just bashes out some double bass drum nonsense for a couple of minutes. 30 seconds, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Neil took it to a new level. So at 12.58, we go from the drum solo back into Working Man. Seamless again. Seamless, seamless, seamless. And then Alex Lifeson rips everyone a new one. That's that's what I wrote down. That's (laughs) what he's doing here. He is. God. It's crazy. It's funny, you know, uh, if you think about it, they're such great musicians. I'm sure there was, there must have been a friendly rivalry between them, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. 
but you you come out. <laughs> Neil does his thing for three minutes or whatever, and you're waiting in the wings. And then you come out. You have got to take. You got to pick up that gauntlet, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to pick it up and try your best to do it better. It's amazing. This solo is full of that kind of macho kind of feelings. Yep. And as we mentioned, over a full minute of crowd noise at the end. This is the crowd waiting for the encore. Yep. And it's omitted on the CD. You know, the CD ends here. So if you had the CD, you didn't get the encore. Well, I have a question for you, Steve. When you first first started seeing concerts, did you really think that you, by clapping so loud and screaming, that you were actually bringing the band back out? Like, did you think that there was there was a chance that they wouldn't come out? I never thought that. I always thought that. You thought that? Really? Uh, yeah. I'm like, oh, God, I hope they come out for at least one more song. It wasn't for a while till I realized, oh, everybody <laughs> just comes out for a song. But I think the first, I'd be like, man, I hope they come, especially in like clubs, if you see a band in a club. Well, that, uh, that you don't know. Well, they always did though. Yeah. Have you ever been to a show where somebody didn't come out for an encore? I can't think of one. I think I have. I can't recall which one it was. I've been, I've been to so many shows. It had to happen, right? It, I guess. Where the band was so pissed off. Oh, I know which one it was. The Kinks at the Stone Pony. Oh my God, that's right. <laughs> Remember that? Oh God, he was so mad being there. You can yeah. tell. What did he play for, 45 minutes? Ray was so mad. They played for 45 minutes. Now the Stone Pony, uh, much like the Saint, is a bar with a venue in it. It is a venue and has a great bar. But yeah, it's a bar. And I think what happened is the Kinks agreed to do a show at the Stone Pony because it's legendary, right? Yeah, Springsteen. Springsteen. And then they showed up and saw it and was like, <laughs> and they were like, what the hell are we doing here? Right? Before, yeah, before they renovated the place, if you were on stage, you were eye level with the pipes. <laughs> but I will never forgive Ray for that because he could have easily just said, you know what? This place sucks, but these people are here to see me. I'm going to put on a great show. And he didn't yeah. do that. No. And I thought that was really selfish of him. Well, he had a he had a, a distinct look of disappointment on his face the second he walked on stage. I know, but the, the, the fans that were there to see them were there to see them, you know? Can you imagine being a, a Kinks fan for like our friend? Yeah. Glenn, humongous Kinks fan, getting to see them like at the stone pony at the stone pony he he must have been disappointed oh i was that's the only time i ever saw the kinks and i yeah i was disappointed and i, I said to myself i am never paying a nickel to see them again after that and you kept your word and i kept my word but my point is if, if that was rush they never would have acted like that never no you know the funniest um we're getting off weight tangents. You can, <laughs> I could cut all this out, Jared. Don't worry. You can cut it all out. But one of the funniest things, you know how much I love this band called Morphine, right? Mm-hmm. Well, one time I was at Stone Pony and the drummer had a broken leg. He was playing drums with a broken leg. Wow. It was his uh, hi-hat foot. So maybe he just wasn't using the hi-hat or he just parked it on the hi-hat. Um, and so, you know, he was on crutches when he got on the stage. So at the end of the show, at the end of the set, the lead singer, Mark Sandman, was just like, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been great. We're Morphine from, from Boston. And instead of getting off the stage, they walked to the back of the stage and stood against the wall <laughs> while everybody clapped. <laughs> and everybody clapped for like a minute, you know, 
And then they looked at each other and they, you know, they came back forward and Sandman said, thanks for bringing us out. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the funniest things. All right. Well, let's get back to Rush, Jer. I'm so sorry. Yes. Track 10 on All the World's a Stage is What You're Doing. So again, Neil, some outstanding symbol work here. He adds so much to this song. Yeah, absolutely. And what are your thoughts on this song being left out as opposed to one of the other songs on the CD release? Well, I think if you're going to cut it anywhere, you would cut it at the end of what seems to be at the end of the show. And mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So it has a longer crowd thing at the end and they say goodnight and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. So. It, it makes sense. I, I don't know what other song I would cut, though, other than this one. Which one would you cut? I don't know. I don't know. But the thing that I like about the ending of this is Rush gives it that stereotypical rock concert ending. Oh, yeah. And it's great. Yeah. And that's missing on my CD. You know, yeah, it's miss- I, If I listen to the CD, I don't get to hear that. And I, I think you need that. Yeah, maybe if you um, didn't know it was there, obviously you wouldn't miss it because, you know, the the working man finding my way is also an incredible ending. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You do miss the the classic rock and roll concert ending. I mean, it's tough. If I had to cut something, I would probably cut something for nothing as much as I love that song over this just because it was in the middle of the show rather than the end. But Hmm. splitting hairs, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I... Never, I never had the album, so I guess I never noticed it. Right. So I, it didn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. And another great solo by Alex. We're, we don't need to get into it. Duh. Duh, Steve. Duh. And the thing I like at the end. <laughs> yeah, I know you're going to say it. <laughs> now, I don't know who this is. Now, I, I read the chapter in Martin's book, and Getty says that it's, it's them at the end. Yeah, of course. Is it? Why did I not think it was them all these years? I, I just thought it was fans. I did not know that that was them. It sounds like Getty, first of all. And they're, it sounds like they get off stage and they're like, oh, what a great show. What a great show, whatever. So what I hear is, what a show. Man, oh man, I guess that's it. Oh. That's what I thought I heard. And I got to go to the bathroom. That's what <laughs> that's I heard. Good. That's Alex, right? <laughs> Alex is probably saying, I got to go to the bathroom. But I had no idea. I just thought it was fans. Oh, I thought it was them. Well, according to Martin's book, it is. All right, then. According to Getty, it is. And does he say that Alex is the one saying he has to go to the bathroom? I'll read you the portion of the book. All right. I'll read it right now. Um, Let's see. Probably the funniest thing to do with that album was the way we ended it, says Getty. We had this long applause, and in the end, we faded the applause into this sound of Alex, Neil, and myself in the parking lot clapping our hands. We put it long into the thing, so you really have to let the applause run to the end of the groove to hear it. The applause fades into the three of us in the parking lot clapping, and then we say, okay, see you later, and we get into the car, and you hear the car door slam, and we drive away. Wow, it's like a, it's like a hidden track. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, Jerry, your thoughts overall on All the World's a Stage? A fantastic document of an actual Rush show, I think. Even though it wasn't recorded in one night, 
it's definitely sequenced and put together like a single show. Mm-hmm. So that's what I love about it. And it's noisy as hell. It's loud. So love it. One thing we didn't talk about is the prevalence of live albums in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Live albums were so huge in the 70s. And this is just one of them. And I found a Rolling Stone readers poll of Rolling Stone readers, greatest live albums of the 70s. Oh, boy. I'm going to ask you to name the 10 albums. You don't have to get them in order. Okay. But if you can name, if you, I bet you can get eight of the 10 live albums from the 70s. Is this album on the chart? I don't think it would be, but. It is. Oh. I'll give you that one. Okay. Rush is number four on the list. You got to go with Kiss Alive. Kiss Alive is number seven. Peter Frampton Comes Alive. That's number eight. Uh, Cheap Trick at Budokan. Number six. Very good so far. You got four of the ten. Um, let's see. Two are going to be hard. I think you'll get the other ones. Could it possibly be Kiss Alive 2? No. Yeah. I didn't, can I take that back? That's not a guess. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I mean, I used to buy live albums all the time. I can't think of like huge live albums though. Well, I'll give you the rest. Okay. So number 10 is wings over America. Ah, right. I didn't know that was in the seventies. Number nine is live at Leeds. Oh, Mm -hmm. eight is Frampton. Seven is kiss alive. Six cheap trick Zeppelin. The song remains the same. Oh, geez. Number five. See, that's a, isn't that a, um, concert movie though? Yeah, but there was an album with it, right? Yeah, but I, not that I would have guessed it, but right, I might not have thought about it as being an album. I thought it was like, whatever. So Rush is number four. Number three is Deep Purple, Made in Japan. Never would have guessed that. Number two is the Allman Brothers at Fillmore East. Jeez. And number one, I never, ever in my life would have guessed. Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, Live Bullet. Oh, my God. I've never heard that album. Oh, I have. And? But I, it's Bob Seger songs live. <laughs> <laughs> no surprises, man. If you like Bob Seger, I would get Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band live bullet. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's not the, I disagree that it's the, this is the greatest or like the best selling. This is according to Rolling Stone readers. That's all. I wouldn't say that's the best live album I ever heard in my life. One I think that's missing that came out ju- just made the 70s, 1979, is Judas Priest Unleashed in the East. I knew you were going to say that. That's a great one, right? That is a great one. Yep. That's a good one. There's got to be others, though. There has to be others. Oh, there's others. There's others. But, I mean, the 70s was just huge for live albums. Huge. Yeah. And just the fact that those 10, those 10 are, were big. Yeah. And I think it was, or at least if you uh, ask Gene Simmons that Kiss... The first kiss alive, like started the whole thing. If you ask Gene. Yeah. We're not asking <laughs> Gene though. Because before that, he, he has claimed that, you know, live albums were something that people did just to fulfill a, a contract and they weren't expected to do anything. And, and kiss alive is what actually broke kiss mm-hmm. into a big band. So let's move on to the rush concert set list. Jared. Oh yes. Not only was all the world's a stage an album it was also a tour. We got to do the set list. Wait, they toured for the, t- for the live album? To support the live album, just like they did wow. with Exit Stage Left. Yep. So here's the list. This is New Year's Eve 
at Maple Leaf Gardens, 1976. Oh, boy. That must have been great. How about that? They start off with Bastille Day, of course, then Anthem, Lakeside Park. So far, exactly the set list of this album. Okay. 2112, parts 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, and 7. Only Oracle the Dream is omitted this time. The Twilight Zone. What? Yeah. Something for Nothing. Best I Can. By Tor and the Snow Dog. Now, you ready for this? By Tor and the Snow Dog into The Necromancer. What? Yes. The Necromancer. Do you know where it cuts in? I have no idea. It can't possibly start at the very beginning of The Necromancer, can it? I could. How great would that have been? I got to track down a boot. We got, I'm going to... I'm going to email Ray and see if he has a bootleg of that show. He may. If anybody has it, Ray's got it. In the end, working man, finding my way. So basically just like we heard on the album, followed by the drum solo. Yep. The encore is fly by night and in the mood. Huh. Good. The medley or just? I don't know. It doesn't list working man and finding my way as a medley. I assume that it was. And I assume fly by night and in the mood was done the same way, considering they Mm -hmm. did it for the album. You would think they would do it for the tour, but it's not listed that way on the set list. Hmm. Good show. So I wanted to add one more thing, Jared, to all the world's a stage and the liner notes among the people they thank, which I thought was interesting. We've got Rod Serling. Of course. Peter Talbot, you know, Peter Talbot. Sure. June and Ward Cleaver, the Uh sleeping Brune. Miss Anne, the bag, <laughs> the, bag. the Lizzie's, <laughs> Chivas Regal, tennis, dead fly cookies, and Becker's chocolate milk. <laughs> now, there's some other people that they thank too, but real people. <laughs> <laughs> I thought those were interesting, but but also here's the ending of the liner notes. It's not perfect, but it is faithful to us and you. We have tried to strike a careful balance between perfection and authenticity and to create a finished work that you may enjoy and we may be proud of. This album to us signifies the end of the beginning, a milestone to mark the close of chapter one in the annals of Rush. To all our friends everywhere, we thank you for your friendship and support and wish you success in all your aspirations. Alex, Getty, Neil. Yeah, well, it's true. The next album, right? I just found it interesting that they called it the close of chapter one. Oh yeah. They knew they knew at this point there would be many chapters. Yeah, absolutely. I guess they knew after doing 2112, it's like, okay, well, I don't think we can do 2112 again. <laughs> like, like an album side thing again. Yeah. I just wonder how many chapters they thought they would have. Yeah. A lot. They had a lot of chapters, a lot of chapters. I just wonder if they had those kind of as- aspirations at that time. Never know. Thought it was interesting. Yeah, it is. And uh, your thoughts on our talk about all the world's a stage? Well, I'm glad we. I had something to say. You always have something to say, Joe. <laughs> do I really? I think you do. Well, I'm glad I was able to, to get it out this time. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are The Rushcast. Email Jerry, let him know what you thought of his musings on all the world's a stage at therushcast at gmail.com. 
Lex did the bass intro and outro for us. He did a great job, as he always does. And Jerry has got a quote for you. Jerry, what's that quote? Well, it's not a Rush quote. It's going to be uh, the Shakespeare quote that ah. gave title. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about that. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, it's from As You Like It. Play As You Like It. All right, I got to put on my Shakespearean. Yeah, let's hear, let's hear this. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Nice. Perfect way to end it. I know, right? Thanks, Thanks Jer. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.